This is Case Closed, crime stories from the golden age of radio. Welcome back to Case Closed. Thanks for joining me this Wednesday for another hour of old-time radio detective stories. We'll begin this week with the adventures of Michael Shane and the left-handed clue, his story from April 16, 1945. After that, it's Sherlock Holmes and the Camberwell Poisoning, his case from February 18, 1946. The Adventures of Michael Shane, Private Detective. The people who make 76 gasoline and Triton Motor Oil, Union Oil Company, present... The Adventures of Michael Shane, Private Detective, starring Wally Mayer and Kathy Lewis. Most private detectives, when they're called into a case by a wealthy patron, are ushered into the library or the gun room or the master's private den. Not so private detective Michael Shane and his attractive assistant Phyllis Knight. Oh, no. They find themselves at San Francisco's Cliff House to keep a date with, well, let Phyllis tell it, which she is doing without any of the poetry she knows so well. Now, there's no use arguing, Mike Shane. If she oh. weren't a blonde and good-looking, you'd have turned the case down. For the thousandth time, honey, I tell you, I haven't seen the girl. Oh, really? She isn't blonde, and I don't know whether or not she's good-looking. I'll bet, I'll I bet. I only know, honey, that she's frightened. Mm-hmm. She said she was a brunette, five foot two, and wearing a Kelly green raincoat. Well, then, there she is, hmm? staring out the window. Right, Angel. Well, leave us ankle over. You know, she does look scared. Oh, she saw us. Hey, does she know you? No, but I told her I was bringing you along and there aren't any other couples around. Mr. Shane and Miss Knight? Correct. You, Miss Jones? Well, no. Well, that is, I used that name over the phone, but my real name is Wright. Not Patricia Wright? Yes. Hmm? Oh, then it was your brother. I mean, I read the article in the papers. Say, what is all this? My brother was killed Monday. The police said it was an accident. He fell over the cliff, they said, but... But you think he was killed <clears throat> deliberately? Yes. Uh, murdered, in fact. Yes. Why? Well, I just know he was pushed over that cliff. And now, whom do you suspect? Oh, I don't know. My father's manager, Mr. Haberman, for one, and, mm-hmm. and a Mr. Armstrong, a businessman dealing with my father, and... And and your father? Well, yes. Well, not that I think my father killed my brother, no, but... Well, I am suspicious of some of my father's business dealings and very suspicious of some of his associates. Uh, Miss Wright, your brother was in the business with your father? Yes, and, well, he didn't approve of some of their deals. Did he complain to you or to your father, or both? Both. Oh, they've had bitter quarrels over some of their transactions. And how about you, Miss Wright? Are you afraid for your own life? Yes, terribly oh. afraid. Okay. Okay, that settles it so far as I'm concerned. We'll take the case. Now, uh, how about going out to your place and looking over the ground? Oh, hmm? But we can't. That's why I used the assumed name and... That's why I met you here instead of at the house. Listen, Patricia, your best safeguard is to let the murderer know that you have a detective on the job. The very fact that you've engaged me will make them wonder how much you know. We'll watch out for you, Miss Wright. Nothing's going to happen to you while Mike's on the job. Well, all right, I'll do it. Fine. Good. Now get in your car then and we'll follow you out. And even if he turns out to be your father, we'll get the killer. <laughs> It's over here, just by that white post. That's where he... he fell. Uh-huh. Oh, boy. Did they, uh... Did they take your brother's body away from the bottom of the cliff or, uh, bring it up here on ropes? They took it away from the bottom, in a boat. I see. Was there much of a crowd here at the top? No. Why? Well, there are a lot of footprints here. The I'll ground say. is pretty well tramped down. But there weren't any people here at all. This is private property. A murderer tramped the ground to confuse... Hey, wait a minute. What? What is it, Mike? Honey, you see those marks? Yeah. Those marks were made by a dead man's heels as his body was dragged to the edge of the cliff and thrown over. And the killer hid behind the tree. Yes, and probably hit his victim with a rock. Yeah. Uh, Patricia, did your brother have a date with anyone the night he was killed? Yes, with Mr. Haberman, Daddy's partner. Mr. Haberman came out to the house at 8 o'clock said that he'd made an appointment to meet my brother. But about 10 o'clock, he decided to go home. 
Just as he was leaving, the chauffeur came to the door and said that they'd found the body down on the rocks below the cliff. Was the chauffeur looking for your brother? No, he didn't know anything was wrong then. The chauffeur was out fishing and was just coming into the little cove when he saw a hat on the water. He turned the boat along the rocks and found my brother's body. The chauffeur is up at the house now? No, he left. He left? He left? What do you mean? Well, he'd been doing a lot of drinking, and my brother fired him about a week ago. Oh, fine. We seem to be turning up suspects wherever we move. Yeah, right, Angel. Well, Miss Patricia, will you get your father's manager and Mr. Armstrong up to the house right away? Use any excuse at all. I'll get Inspector Faraday to find the chauffeur, and we'll have a little quiz contest with Mike Shane as quizmaster. I don't know what on earth you could be thinking of, Patricia, to do such a thing. But, Daddy... Not another word. You tell this Shane fellow to get about his business. When any private detectives are hired to come to this house, I'll do the hiring. Daddy, I'm more convinced than ever that my brother was murdered. Murdered? Stuff and nonsense. My dear, you're upset. I don't blame you for that. You were very fond of your brother. But thinking for one moment that any of my business associates could be guilty of such a thing... The idea of dragging Mr. Haberman and Mr. Armstrong out here to be cross-questioned by a, a private detective. Why, it isn't as if there was any suspicion about your brother's death. The police were satisfied it was an accident. I'm not satisfied, however, Mr. Wright. Who are you, sir? Michael Shane, private detective, and this is my assistant, Miss Knight. Hello, I'm very happy to meet you, Mr. Wright. I'm sorry I can't say the same. Hmm? I hate to appear impolite, but I must ask you to leave my house immediately. Well, let's go, Mike. We don't have to take this sort of thing from anybody. Uh, just a minute, Angel. Oh, really? Mr. Wright, I suppose you realize that by your attitude, you're casting a lot of unnecessary suspicion on yourself. Why, you impudent young whelp. If I were a younger man, I'd thrash you within an inch of your life, you... Will you leave quietly, or will I have to have you thrown out? Evidently, there's company at the door, and I'd much prefer not to have to introduce you. Pardon me, sir, but Mr. Faraday. Faraday? Detective Inspector Faraday, sir. With the chauffeur, sir. Hello, Mike. Phyllis? Hello, Inspector. Mr. Wright here was just about to order us thrown out. <laughs> he won't have a private detective around the place. I see. Well, maybe he'll let you stay as my assistant. What on earth are you talking about? I'm talking about the fact that we're here to investigate the death of your son. I'd just as soon get on with the questioning if you haven't any objections. Will you have everybody come in here? Uh, Inspector, they're all out in the front hall. I Maybe don't know what this is all about. I'm only the chauffeur. I haven't done anything. I'll sue you for arresting me. That's, That's right. Do. Be sure and do that. All right, into the front hall. Well, which one of you is Haberman? I'm Mr. Haberman. Why? And Armstrong, that's you, I suppose. Mm-hmm, correct. Now, I don't know much about this except what Mike told me over the phone, but I understand that you, Mr. Haberman... Had an appointment with Mr. Wright, Jr., the deceased, the evening he was killed. Yes, that is true. Uh, what was that meeting about? Well, I don't see that it's any of your business. You mm -hmm. can answer that question here and now or at headquarters later. Take your choice. Well, uh, it was a business matter. Don't answer him. But, right, if I don't, he'll take me in and... And you know. he'll have to answer in the long run. It was uh, business, and young Mr. Wright was going to tell you that he wouldn't play along with the kind of deal you and his father were cooking up, correct? Well, that's putting it rather strongly. Hmm. He was a young fellow, too many idealistic ideas for the business world. I was quite certain I could straighten him out when we sat down and talked it over. And when he wouldn't listen, you threatened his life? Of course not. You didn't see him that night at all? No, I didn't. And you weren't anywhere near the top of the cliff between 8 and 10.30? I most certainly was not. Can you prove that? I can. I sat and talked with Mr. Haberman all evening. And Mr. Armstrong, I suppose you have an alibi, too? Well, I don't know. I think I was at a picture show that night, but I wasn't keeping track of my movements. Uh, I wasn't anywhere near this house, though. Mm-hmm. Oh, Inspector. Yes, Mike. Come here. I think we ought to do some checking on the murdered man's papers. We might find something that would give us a lead. You're probably right, Mike. Okay. You can all go now. But don't leave the place. We may want to do a few more answers before we leave. Uh, Miss Patricia. Yes, Inspector. Will you take us to your brother's room? We'll see what that leads us to. find anything, honey? Uh-uh. Nothing important, Mike. How about you, Inspector? Nothing. I hope we're not on a wild goose chase. Oh, I know we're not. Hey, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Here's something. What, what is it, Mike? Find, Mike? It's a memo pad. And here's an entry. It says, must talk to father about Haberman's inability to do things honestly. If he can be so dishonest with the people we are doing business with, 
There will come a day when he will be as dishonest with us. Hey, hey, look at that later entry, Mike. The one made the day he was killed. Here. Oh, yes. We'll have showdown with Haberman tonight. Either he goes or I get out of the business. I've called him and made appointment for 7 o'clock. Wait a minute. 7 o'clock? Haberman said he made the appointment for 8 o'clock. Yeah, that's he right. Did. Come on. Come on, we'd better hurry up looking through this stuff and then a little more questioning Shane, for Mr. Shane, Haberman. What's the matter? What's the matter? What's the matter? What's the matter? Mr. Shane, Inspector, yeah. it's it's unbelievable. It's horrible. What is it? What is it? Haberman. I I went to the stables a few minutes ago. Go on, go on. Haberman was lying there, dead. In just a moment, we'll rejoin Mike Shane and his assistant Phyllis in their adventures. All of us know that some restaurants always seem to serve better food than others, even though their menus may read the same. The reason, of course, is simple. Better ingredients plus extra attention on the part of skilled help. The same principles apply to car lubrication. For example, Union Oil Stopware lubrication is more than just a grease job. Stopware lubrication is a highly specialized servicing process. Only trained attendants using the latest and most modern equipment are allowed to service your car. Each fitting and bearing is thoroughly lubricated with the finest, high-quality greases in accordance with the manufacturer's specifications. While your car is on the hoist, the Minutemen inspect out-of-sight points and check them for danger signs. As final evidence of the care and exactness with which stopware lubrication is performed, you receive a thousand-mile written guarantee with each job. Definite proof of reliable service. So, ladies and gentlemen, since careful, thorough lubrication is so vital to the life of your car, why not buy Stopware? Stopware guaranteed lubrication is available only at Union Oil Minuteman stations, and it costs no more than ordinary lubrication. Just look for the sign of the big orange and blue 76. Thank you. It is a few minutes later. Mike, Phyllis, and Inspector Faraday have reached the stables and stand looking down at Haberman's body. Now, how did it happen? Well, he just got too close to Prince, and Prince lashed out and kicked him. I found him lying here when I came by. Was anybody else around the stables? Yes, uh, Armstrong was here, and the groom and the gardener. Isn't it a bit odd that everyone should gather at the stables? No, I don't think so. Everybody's interested in the horses, especially Prince. Why Prince? Well, I've warned them all to keep away from him. He's a killer. Why have you kept him, then? Because I can handle him. So can the stable hands, and he's a very valuable horse. He just lashes out at strangers or people who don't talk to him as they approach him. <laughs> Surely you don't think this is murder, too? Hmm? Why, it's ridiculous. Nobody in their right mind can have any doubt as to how Haberman was killed. The mark of the horseshoe is as plain, too plain... Well, you can see the curve of the shoe across his forehead. Perhaps I'm not in my right mind, Mr. Wright, but when two men engaged in the same business die within a few days of each other, I'm suspicious. You and me both, Mike. Mr. Wright, you just walked out from the house and found Haberman lying dead. Well, uh, more or less, I came out from the back of the house, hmm? saw that the upper half of the door to Prince's stall was unlatched. I came over to latch it and found Haberman. I couldn't see him lying on the ground from where I was because, as you can see, he was hidden by the water trough. Yes. Yes, I see. So, Inspector, depending on how you look at it, everybody has alibis or nobody has an alibi. You're right, Mike. They all have alibis if they're telling the truth. Well, I most certainly have. I was talking on the telephone from the time I left you until I came out here. The servant saw me in the hall when I was on the phone. Oh, yes, and the chauffeur and the stable boy, Joe, saw me at the back of the stables. I didn't even come around front until Wright called out. That's true. I'm his alibi and he's mine. <laughs> so I'm afraid, Mr. Shane, you'll have to pin the guilt on the horse after all. Yeah, it looks that way, doesn't it? Oh, Mike. Yes, Inspector? How about running down to headquarters with me? Okay, but you're going to leave someone here. Well, I hardly think we need... Inspector. Inspector, for 24 hours, I'd like someone posted at the stables and at the west side of the house looking out toward the cliff. Yeah, but Mike... If only to guarantee the safety of Miss Wright. Okay, Mike. I'll leave the sergeant and one man. Will that satisfy you? Excellent, Inspector. Excellent. Now I'm quite ready to accompany you to headquarters. Oh, 
Okay, here you are, Inspector. Report on a threatening telegram. A threatening wire addressed to Haberman was handed in at San Francisco's main office. No one remembers what the man looked like. They paid no attention. Okay, follow through on the chauffeur, will you? Yes, sir. Well, it's not much help. Uh, why don't you give up, Mike? After all, we're just following nothing but a hunch from that girl, Patricia. Now, that's right, Mike. I admit it's a bit gruesome having two deaths in the same household, but it's happened before. Oh, there's something wrong about the whole thing. What do you mean, Mike? Well, as I see it, the father, Mr. Wright, isn't above entering into shady deals. No, that seems apparent. So one can legitimately assume that his manager, Haberman, wasn't uh, averse to entering into the same sort of deal. We don't have to assume that. We know it from the son's memo pad. Yeah, that's right. The son actually accused him of being crooked. And we have Armstrong, a business associate. We can assume in his case, too, that he's not above turning a sort of twisted penny. To all of which the son is opposed. To such an extent that he actually puts in writing that he's going to talk to his father and that either the crooked manager goes or he does. Right. And if we assume, too, that the father would rather have his son in the business than the crooked manager, we have motive for murder. For some men, at least. And we have Haberman making a date to see the son. Which Haberman says was for 8 o'clock but which we know for a fact was at 7 o'clock. You're building quite a case, Mike, but it all hinges on supposition. Suppose, Mike, that you're right. Yeah? And if you are right, and Haberman did kill the son, justice already overtaken him. Yeah, but there's something wrong with the whole thing, Inspector. You say I'm building the whole case uh, uh, of a supposition. Well, plus a hunch of the girls, Mike. And a funny little quirk that keeps running through my own mind. What? Well... When I was a kid, I used to hold horses at the old Fairfax Hunt Club. Yes? Sometimes for a whole day's work, I made two bits. One day, well, I hadn't made my two bits. I guess I was a little on the anxious side. I stepped up too quickly to a horse. He lashed out at me, and I, I jumped back. But that hoof, with its iron shoe, seemed to be following me. It was a huge, as huge as a, as a barn door. A great big black iron shoe that would mash my face in from chin to forehead. A great big letter U coming at... Go on, go on. Wait a minute. Wait a minute, a big U. That's it. That's what's wrong with the picture. Oh, what a blockhead I've been. Say, what goes? What is it, Mike? Oh, come on. Can't you picture Haberman lying there on the ground by the stable? Well, sure I can, Don't but... you remember what Wright said? The mark of the horseshoe is as plain, too plain. You can see the curve of the shoe across his forehead. I remember him saying that, but what an... Mike, you're right. Well, I don't get it. Huh? I don't... Yes, I do. Haberman would have had to be standing on his head for the horseshoe to have left a mark like that. Atta girl, honey, the mark was upside down. Come on, come on. Back to the right stables as fast as that squad car of yours will take us, Faraday. Go right back to the stables, Inspector. We can park there. Right, Mike. I'm going to follow my hunch as long as I'm in the mood. What do you mean, hunch? If I were a killer and had killed a man at the stables... Yes? ...and I was so certain that everybody would think it was an accident... ...and so nobody would even think of looking for a weapon... Yeah, yeah. ...where would I go to hide the weapon? The, the hayloft. Hay right. So, come on, up these steps. Here, honey, I'll help you there. Well, I'm not very good at this. Wait. I know that, but come on. There we are. Now you take the far end, honey. And I'll right. climb up onto the rat. Okay, and I'll take this end. It's not behind the speed box. It's not here either. Where's it? Where's Phyllis? Here. Here, under this load of hay. Okay. Anything up there, Inspector? No, everything up here is covered with dust, so I think this is all in the clear. Okay, come down then before you break your neck. Ooh. What? What is it, honey? Oh, it's something heavy and wet. Huh? And sort of sticky. It, it's blood, Mike. Let me have it. I'll use my handkerchief. There may be fingerprints. What is it? Just a second. Oh, ye gods. Look, Inspector. A heavy piece of timber. Oh, but with a horseshoe nailed to the flat side. Upside down. Okay. Okay, let's keep our find a secret and continue our quizzing. <laughs> We'll rejoin Mike Shane, Phyllis Knight, and Inspector Faraday in their search for the killer in just a moment. 
We'd like you to listen for a moment to one of the most sickening sounds of modern life. Lately, you've been hearing that sound more frequently. Traffic accidents in the United States are increasing to an alarming extent as our automobiles grow older. To reduce human casualties and conserve transportation, the International Association of Chiefs of Police has developed a program to emphasize the need for good brakes for all cars. For the next six weeks, law enforcement officers throughout the nation will conduct a brake-checking campaign. They are seeking to protect your life and property. This program on brake emphasis for traffic safety is supported by over 100 automobile clubs and traffic organizations, including the Office of Defense Transportation. Your cooperation is earnestly requested. You can help by checking your own brakes. If you can depress your brake pedal within an inch of the floorboard before the brakes take hold, they are inadequate and demand immediate attention. Remember... Serious accidents can occur at speeds as low as 20 miles per hour if your brakes are in poor condition. So, ladies and gentlemen, if you have the slightest doubt about the condition of your automobile brakes, don't take chances. Have them inspected without delay. Mike, Phyllis, Inspector Faraday, and Patricia Wright are in the library waiting for the members of the household to put in an appearance. Are you sure you don't want me to get Daddy and the others in here? No, no, not yet. We let them wander in one at a time and take them by surprise. I I have a reason. Hey, what about the chauffeur, Mike? For my money, he's out. Mm -hmm. Why, Mike? Well, as a suspect for the killing of the son who fired him, he was a possibility, but I see no connection between him and Haberman's death. No, perhaps not. But don't forget one thing. He's the alibi for Armstrong, just as Armstrong is his alibi. The way I'm thinking right now, honey, no one has an alibi. What do you mean? When all the suspects have alibis for their actions, and yet you have two bodies to account for, there's only one extra. One and that is? Someone or all of them are lying. And the alibis mean nothing, so just ignore them. Mike, somebody's coming. Hmm? That's right. Oh, there you are, Pat. What? Oh, I, I thought you'd all gone back to the city. We did, sir, but we have a few more questions we'd like answered. <laughs> if you don't mind my saying so, I... I think you're not quite bright. Hmm? Meaning what, Mr. Wright? Meaning that you're all following a completely senseless theory, trying to find clues to a murder when no murder has been committed. To everyone but you, it's obvious that Mr. Haberman had been kicked by Prince. Suppose we just skip that for a moment, huh? Uh, Mr. Wright, just exactly what is the relationship between your firm and Mr. Armstrong? I don't see that it's any of your business. Oh, now let's not go through that routine again. If you'd let me finish, I still think it's none of your business, but I'm perfectly willing to tell you. Mr. Armstrong is an agent for some eastern industrial properties which we're considering purchasing. I see. And was Mr. Haberman in complete agreement with you about this purchase? He was up until a few nights ago. Uh, what or who changed his mind? Well, uh, my son wasn't too happy about the deal, and I think he changed Haberman's mind. When did your son tell you that you either fired Haberman or he would leave the company? What? Why? No, 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 no. Don't get all insulted and abusive. We know your son did tell you that. Patricia, if you... Your daughter had nothing to do with our knowing that, Mr. Wright. Ah, let's not argue about it. It is true, isn't it? Yes. And what did you decide? Well, go on. Answer. Well, I... I hadn't made up my mind. I... I sort of hoped that things would work themselves out. And they have, sir. First, by the death of your son, and next, Haberman. Both troublesome elements removed within a... Surely you don't... You can't think that I'd connive in the death of my own son. Patricia, you... Yes, Father. You don't believe that I had anything to do with... No, Dad. And I don't either. Nor do Miss Knight and Inspector Faraday. Well, I... I'm glad of that, I... I'm glad, too, that you're coming to your senses and realizing that my boy's death was an accident. No, Mr. Wright, your son's death was not an accident, any more than Haberman's was. Well, who could you possibly suspect? Who stands to gain by both deaths? Why, no one. What about Armstrong? Armstrong? But Armstrong... You mean that Armstrong was afraid that my son's objection to our deal and later Haberman's objection might cause a deal to fall through? Exactly, Mr. Wright, and it's very easy to prove, that is. It Mm. will be easy. If you will cooperate. Oh, oh, certainly. I'll cooperate in any way I can. But... <laughs> you haven't been very cooperative so far, Mr. Wright. Yes, well, I'll, I'll do whatever you ask me to. Now we're getting somewhere. Now here's what we'll do. Phyllis, the inspector, and I will hide. Phyllis behind the curtains leading to the terrace. The inspector in a closet. Got it. And I'll get behind the door. Yes. Patricia will go to her own room. 
You, you, Mr. Wright, will call Armstrong in and tell him you're not going through with the deal. I'm quite certain his reaction will be enough to convince you. Well, I, I don't think I'll find that difficult. I, I'd practically made up my mind to that anyway. All this I think is Armstrong ju- is coming in the front door hall. Oh. All right, all right, now, quick, everybody, quick, get set. You run upstairs, Patricia, go on it. Okay, right. Call him in. Uh, oh, uh, <clears throat> that you, Armstrong? Yes. Did you want me? Uh, yes, yes. I I think in spite of all the tragedy around here that we ought to arrive at some definite conclusion about this transaction. Well, I suppose you're right. I didn't want to hurry you or seem aggressive with all the things that have happened. Yes, yes, I understand. But it is an excellent opportunity, and I know you'll make a mint out of it. I'm not going through with it, however. Uh, what? I'm not going through with it, Armstrong. Oh, you're not, huh? Well, that's what you think. What was that you said? I said that if you think you've got to back out now, you've got another thing coming. Oh, wait a minute. You're not leaving me holding the sack. I've obligated myself for those properties, and you're going to buy them. I'm most certainly not going to buy them if I don't want to. And maybe this will persuade you. Put that gun down, you fool. Drop it, Armstrong. The next time, be faster. What is this? Is this a trap? In a way, it is, yes. And apparently quite a justifiable one. I must apologize for the gunplay... And I must apologize for being quite slow and somewhat blind. Blind, Mike? Yes. Yes, I should have noticed long before this that Mr. Armstrong was left-handed. I didn't, however, until he whipped out that gun of his with his left hand. Left-handed? Yes, Phil, left-handed. What What does that matter? I've been left-handed all my life. Yes, Armstrong, left-handed. I think you can produce the evidence now, Inspector. Right, Mike. Did you ever see that weapon before, Armstrong? Where did you find it? In the hayloft. That's where you hit it, isn't it, Armstrong? Okay, Inspector, I don't think we'll get any more argument out of him. You ready, Armstrong? Uh, Yes. Want some more coffee, Inspector? No, thanks, Phyllis. Mmm, that was an excellent dinner. Oh, say that again. Angel's a good cook. Flatterer. As well as being good at uh, poetry reviews. Oh. <laughs> say that left-handed business. I've been turning it over and over in my mind. I don't see what on earth Armstrong's being left-handed had to do with the case at all. Hmm? Well, I thought perhaps his being left-handed was, well, responsible for him nailing the horseshoe on the club the wrong way. Oh, no, Angel. No. That was just the inevitable slip that a murderer makes. Well, then what was the left-handed clue? When I remarked on Armstrong's being left-handed, you repeated it after me, remember? Yeah, sure. I I caught the look in Mike's eye and repeated it after you. Well, yes, I remember that, too. It impressed me, but I didn't catch on. Ah, it impressed Armstrong, too, and he didn't catch on. He didn't know why or what we had in mind, and the inspector and I didn't give him time to find out. We played cat and mouse with him. Armstrong thought that his being left-handed was a clue. He couldn't figure out what it was. But our tone of voice convinced him that we had him dead to rights. And, well, he broke down. Smarty. Hmm? (laughs) It was nothing but playing up a guilty conscience. (laughs) Right, Angel. One of the best weapons a private detective has. So let it be a lesson to you there, darling. And don't try holding out anything on your old man, Mike Shane. Or your good old conscience will get you. again next week at 8.30 for another adventure with Michael Shane, Private Detective, starring Wally Mayer and Kathy Lewis, and Joe Forte as Inspector Faraday. Tonight's story was written and produced by David Taylor, and based on the character created by Brett Halliday. Music was composed and directed by Bernard Katz. This is John Lang saying goodnight for the people who make 76 gasoline and Triton motor oil. Union Oil Company.
This is the Mutual Don Lee Broadcasting System. Petri Wine brings you... Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce in the new adventures of Sherlock Holmes. The Petri family, the family that took time to bring you good wine, invite you to listen to Dr. Watson tell us another exciting adventure he shared with his good friend, that master detective, Sherlock Holmes. And I'd like to tell you about my favorite time of day. It's just before dinner. You know, when the family's all sitting around in the living room and wonderful things are cooking in the kitchen? Ah, that's for me. And boy, that's the time for a glass of sherry. Because Petri California Sherry really makes waiting for dinner a pleasure. That Petri Sherry is the perfect before-dinner wine. Just look at its beautiful amber color. And then taste that wonderful Petri Sherry. What a flavor. Petri Sherry has a rich, nutty flavor that's right from the heart of sun-ripened grapes. And if you like your sherry dry, you know, not sweet, you'll want to get Petri Pale Dry Sherry. Or better yet, taste them both. Don't buy one... Buy two. Those letters P-E-T-R-I on the label are the personal assurance of the Petri family that Petri Sherry is truly good wine. And now it's time to keep the weekly appointment with our good friend, Dr. Watson. How are you this evening, Doctor? I never felt better, thank you, Mr. Bartell. Draw up your usual chair and make yourself comfortable. Thanks. That's it. Oh, I see you've had the old tin dispatch box out again. I suppose you've been going through your notes on tonight's new Sherlock Holmes adventure? Yes, Mr. Bartell, and I think you'll find it as pretty a little problem as we ever encountered. The story began in 1887. A very busy year for us, my boy. It was the same year that Holmes solved the case of the Amateur Mendicant Society who held their meetings in a luxuriously furnished vault below a furniture warehouse. Oh, I remember that story, Doctor. And uh, wasn't 87 the year you both escaped from death in the Paradol Chamber? It was indeed. You've got a very good memory, Mr. Bartell. The story I'm going to tell you tonight topped off this unusually exciting year. It was late in October, and the equinoctial gales had set in with exceptional violence. All day the wind had howled and the rain had beaten against the windows of our Baker Street lodgings. Finally, it was nearly midnight, as far as I remember. The storm grew higher and louder, and the wind in the chimney sobbed like a child. Suddenly, much to our surprise, the doorbell jangled, and a few moments later, our midnight visitor stood before us. He was a man of about 45, and as he looked about him anxiously in the glare of the lamp, I could see that his face was pale and that his eyes heavy, like those of a man who was weighed down with some great anxiety. And yet when he spoke, his tone was businesslike and almost aggressive. I've come to you for advice, Mr. Holmes. That's easily obtained. And help. That is not always so easy. Uh, help the gentleman off with his coat, will you, Watson? Yes, indeed. Here you are, sir. Let me, let me hang it up for you. Thank you, sir. I heard of you, Mr. Holmes, from Major Prendergast. Oh, yes. He said that you could solve anything. Oh, I'm afraid he said too much. But you've never been beaten. I've been beaten four times, sir. Three times by men and once by a woman. But supposing you sit down and introduce yourself. Uh, my friend's name is Watson, Dr. Watson. How do you do, sir? How do you do, Doctor? My name is Lovelace, Edmund Lovelace. And what brings you to me at this hour of the night, Mr. Lovelace? I'm in terrible trouble, Mr. Holmes. You don't know anything about me, but if you'll accept my case, you can save four lives. I wouldn't say that I know nothing about you, sir. No, it's true that I know little beyond the somewhat obvious facts that, uh, well, you're single, <clears throat> that you keep a dog, but not a manservant and that you are much preoccupied with your business, which I take to be some form of insurance. Oh, come, come, come. Oh, steady. Now, what is this? Well, I, magic? I'll wager that my friend's right, though. Isn't he, Mr. Lovelace? Perfectly. But I'll be hanged if I can see how he knows it. It's a practical application of logic, sir. The briefcase that you carry might at first indicate a barrister or some other professional man, but your brusque, business-like manner counteracts that suggestion. An insurance broker 
who must visit clients at odd hours is the likeliest man to combine that manner with a briefcase at midnight. But uh, <laughs> the wife and the manservant and the fact that I'm preoccupied with my business. Uh, your cufflinks don't match, sir. Each is from a different pair. That would suggest preoccupation. And it's a mistake that neither a wife nor a manservant would have allowed to pass. Yes, yes but how about the dog? Home? Oh, surely that's obvious, Watson. Well, I can't see it. I shall let you ponder on that matter while Mr. Lovelace tells us his problem. Mr. Holmes, are you as interested in preventing a murder as in solving one? Well, naturally, I am, Mr. Lovelace. Even more so. But uh, uh, please tell me your story. I live with four cousins of mine in an old house in Camberwell. My grandfather left the house and a sizable fortune to the five of us on condition that we lived together and maintained the family unity. It probably won't surprise you to know that we've grown to get pretty much on each other's nerves. Well, what happens if one of you dies, Mr. Lovelace? His share is divided among the others, Dr. Oh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> well, the wonder to me is, sir, that... Uh, not that a murder may take place, but uh, that it has not happened long ago. Who's responsible for the administration of the estate? My cousin Gerald. He's much older than the rest of us, and he's a thoroughly unpleasant, cantankerous man. Yeah. He gets an extra share in the estate as administrator, and in consequence, he doesn't work. We feel, of course, that he lives off us, and we're continually quarreling with him about it. Well, sounds like a jolly household, I must say. There's going to be trouble, Mr. Holmes, I know it. Gerald hates us, and he's jealous of our share in the estate. You spoke of preventing murder just now. Uh, yet I can see that you've selected your cousin Gerald as the potential murderer. Am I right? Yes, you are. Mm -hmm. But don't think it's personal prejudice that makes me suspect him. I have good reason for doing so. Oh, what reason? This evening, just before dinner, I helped Gerald off with his top coat and went to hang it up for him. As I did so, I heard a strange metallic clink in one of his pockets. I slipped my hand inside it and found a hypodermic syringe and a small pile of liquid. I opened the pile and smelled it. Gentlemen, it reeked of bitter almonds. Bitter cyanide, eh? Now, what did you do? I thought of destroying it, but I realized that that would put him on his guard, so I replaced it in his pocket. Of course, I warned the others, and we decided that I'd come to you. I had to see a most important client tonight, or I'd have been here earlier. Yes, it seems odd that you didn't come directly to Mr. Holmes as soon as you'd made the discovery, Mr. Lovelace. After all, if a potential murderer is walking about with a pocket full of cyanide, I should have thought that, that itself was a, a more important than business. Well, I... Uh... Yes, I, I suppose it might seem so to you, Doctor. Now, that's the most interesting stick you carry, sir. May I examine it? Of course. Here. Oh, thank you. <laughs> now I see how you deduced that Mr. Lovelace had a dog, Holmes. There are the marks of the dog's teeth on the stick. Yes, my dear Watson, but these marks under scrutiny give us even more specific information. He's a large dog. You've had him for some years, Mr. Lovelace, and he's now old and feeble. Well, you're perfectly right, but... I'll be hanged if I can see how you can tell that from looking at a walking stick. <laughs> this stick is covered with teeth marks, therefore it has been carried many times by the dog. Now it's uh, a heavy stick, so only a large dog could have carried it. And the teeth marks also indicate a large jaw. The older marks are deep sunk. Look here. The fresh ones, where the wood is not yet darkened, are shallow. Yes, it's obvious that the jaws are losing their strength. That's very clever of you, Mr. Holmes, but... I don't see what it has to do with the case in hand. Oh, neither do I, Holmes, I must confess. No, surely it tells us that your story, Mr. Lovelace, may bear a less terrifying implication than you think. On the other hand, its implication may be even more terrifying. Oh, it's late at night. I feel that any further delay in this matter would be extremely dangerous. I suggest that we get a cab and come to your house in Camberwell at once. <laughs> Randolph, I'm glad you're still up. I was able to persuade Mr. Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson to come back with me. Gentlemen, this is my cousin, Alice Harley. How do you do? How do you do, Miss Harley? How do you do? And my cousin, Randolph Lovelace. How do you do? How do you do, sir? How do you do, Mr. Lovelace? I've told him about the whole business, Randolph, so we can all speak perfectly freely. Let's begin by sitting down, shall we? Randolph and I had just finished a little cold supper. We've been to the theater tonight. Well, Mr. Holmes, I... I suppose Edmund told you about finding the hypodermic syringe. And the cyanide in Gerald's coat pocket. Yes, tonight. indeed. May I ask where your cousin, uh, Gerald Lovelace, is now? We left the house at seven, but I imagine Gerald went upstairs at eight, as usual. Didn't he, Edmund? On the stroke of eight, Alice. He's very fixed in his habits, Mr. Holmes. He goes up to his room every night at eight. There he reads or works on his accounts and eventually goes to bed any time between ten and one. But he might still be up. I should like to speak to him a little later. In the meanwhile, may I ask you two young people, tell me quite honestly your feelings about your cousin Gerald? And you might as well be frank. I've kept nothing back. All right. 
Randolph and I hate him. First of all, we're sure he's jealous of our shares in the estate, and and then we... Alice and I want to get married, Mr. Holmes, and Gerald won't hear of it. But you're your cousins, aren't you? Only second cousins, Dr. Watson. Gerald is dreadfully conventional. He's threatened us that if we do get married, he'll go to court and try to have our shares in the estate annulled. And from the way the will is worded, I wouldn't be surprised if he could do it. So you can see why we have no great love for him and why we're afraid of him. Well, he sounds an extremely unpleasant person to me. You, you mentioned there were five cousins in the house. Three of you are here. Mr. Gerald Lovelace is upstairs. Who and uh, where is the fifth cousin? The fifth cousin is my brother, Gilly. He's something of a tragedy, I'm afraid. You see, Gilly's 20, but he, he never developed mentally beyond the, the age of eight. He had a bad fall in the hunting field when he was a kid. He's been like this ever since. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that, sir. But he's the dearest, most gentle boy you've ever met. And, incidentally, the one person in this house who doesn't hate Gerald. The poor fellow doesn't understand the conditions of the will, I suppose. No. But if he did, I don't think it'd make any difference. I swear that Gilly loves every living thing, especially Gladstone. Gladstone is the name of his dog. His dog? Yes. The dog may be the key to this whole matter. The dog? What makes you say that, Holmes? When a man brings a quick and painless poison home to a household containing an old and feeble dog, it's more than possible that he has obtained that poison quite legitimately to give the dog a merciful death. To kill Gladstone? Oh, no! After all, Alice, dear, he is old and almost blind But, now. Mr. Holmes, if you think Gerald brought home the poison to put Gladstone out of the way, and I admit it sounds perfectly logical, what made you decide to come here tonight? Because I dare not even guess what you may have done by intruding the thought of murder in this situation. Uh, where is your brother, Gilly? In his room upstairs, asleep. I wonder if we might go up to him. I should like to talk to him, if you don't mind. And after that, I... I want a few words with your cousin, Gerald Lovelace. with a dog in his arm. Mm. I'm afraid we'll have to waken him. Gilly? Gilly? That's all right, Gladstone. We're not going to hurt him. Gilly? Hmm? Who, who, who is it? Oh, hello, Alice. Who, who are these men? They've come to take Gladstone away. Oh, no, Gilly, we, we haven't. Oh, of course not, Gilly. We've just come to admire him. Your brother's been telling us what a fine dog he is. Oh, it's different. He isn't he beautiful? I I just had such a wonderful dream about him. Oh, such a wonderful dream. What was it, Gilly? Hmm? Well, he, he was all young again. It, just a puppy. He, he was chasing a rabbit across a cliff top, and, and and I was running with him. Oh, Glaston looked so beautiful, didn't you, old boy? <laughs> of course you did. And and you know the rabbit went down a hole and. And Gladstone went down after him. And I went down after Gladstone. And, and we all had tea with the rabbits. Huh? It was so funny. They all had little green hats on. Hats with, with feathers. I wanted Gladstone to try one on, but... No, he wouldn't. Huh. So sleepy. Come on, Gladstone. Let's go back to the tea party. Okay. Hmm. His world may be a great deal more pleasant than ours, Watson. That's what I'd like to think, Mr. Holmes. Now I'd like to have a few words with your cousin, Gerald. His room's at the end of this corridor. I'm afraid Gilly wasn't much help to you, Mr. Holmes. On the contrary, young lady. He told me exactly what I wanted to know. Here we are. This is Gerald's room. There's no light under the door. He must have gone to sleep. I'm afraid we must waken him, too. Heavy sleeper. But he isn't. He's a remarkably light one. Come on, let's go in. Strike a match, will you, old fellow? Not sure. The gas mantle's at the head of his bed, Dr. Watson. Yeah. Well, he's lying on the outside of his bed. He must be... There's blood on the pillow. Great Scott Holmes, the back of his skull smashed in. He's been murdered. <gasps> oh, no! Horrible! Yes, Watson, but not by the blows on his head. Look here on the table by his bed. Hypodermic syringe and a broken file. Yes, a broken file. 
reeking of bitter almonds. Poor devil. Well, I won't pretend I liked him. But what a ghastly way to die. All they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. So the scriptures say, Mr. Lovelace. The very suspicion of the killing has brought murder to pass. Well, it's too late to prevent it. Our job now is to find the killer and see that he's brought to justice. Dr. Watson will tell you the rest of his story in just a few seconds. Just time enough for me to tell you that if there's one wine that's perfect for any occasion, it's Petri California Sherry. With a bottle of that rich, amber-colored Petri Sherry on hand, you can make that time before dinner a, a main event. And Petri Sherry is the perfect answer to the question of what to serve when company comes. Serve Petri Sherry alone and let its full, wonderful flavor speak for itself, or serve Petri Sherry with hors d'oeuvres or party sandwiches. And remember, you can serve Petri Sherry proudly because Petri is the proudest name in the history of American wine. Well, Dr. Watson, so you found Gerald Lovelace dead in one of the bedrooms of the house in Camberwell. Uh, what did you do? Send for the police? Not at once, Mr. Bartell. Sherlock Holmes persuaded the remainder of the household to give him the opportunity of examining the scene of the crime carefully before the police were sent for. And so, a few minutes before one o'clock that October night, Holmes and I stood alone in the room of death. Yes, a little higher, will you, old chap? Uh, you know, Holmes, I think you should have sent for the police right away. In a case like this, Watson, I prefer to be my own police. When I have spun the web, they may take the flies, but not before. What are the results of your medical examination, old chap? Well, it's exactly as you reconstructed it, Holmes. He was first beaten on the head with that poker lying on the floor. Then he had the full file of cyanide injected into his left wrist. Can you estimate the time of death at all accurately? No, this room's confoundedly hot. He might have died any time from one to, to five hours ago. Yes. It's now one o'clock, and we know that he was alive at eight. Mr. Edmund Lovelace saw him leave for his room at that hour. Yes. If he was telling the truth. One thing we do know for a fact is that this man was murdered at the exact moment he was going to bed. He's wearing his nightgown and nightcap, but his bed has not been slept in. Well, isn't it possible that the murderer might have killed him shortly after eight and then dressed him in his night clothes to confuse us? No, my dear chap. You will notice that the hypodermic needle passed through the sleeve of his nightshirt. Here. Also, the nightcap is crushed and bloodstained from the blows of the poker. No, Gerald Lovelace had prepared for bed. Yes. With a glass of water on the night table and the, the prayer book, the watch. Yes, signs of a prosperous and meticulous man. Mm -hmm. Very fine gold watch and in excellent condition. Aha. Uh -huh. There's the answer, Watson. What do you mean, there's the answer, Watson? I just wound this watch one turn and then it was fully wound. That provides us with a time schedule for our murder. Come on. We'll send a servant for the police, and while they're on the way, if you'll call everyone together, I should like to put a few more questions to this family. Before the police arrive, I should like to hear your statements again very carefully, if you don't mind. Mr. Edmund Lovelace, what were your exact movements tonight? I... Left here shortly before ten. From ten o'clock until the time I came to Baker Street, I was with my client. His name and address, please. Derek Waterlow, 39, Onslow Square, South Kensington. Thank you. Make a note of these, will you, Watson? Right, you are, Holmes. You, Miss Harley, and you, Mr. Randolph Lovelace, went to the theatre together. Can any independent witness testify as to your movements? Well, yes, Mr. Holmes. We went with friends, the Grant Moresby's. They live at the Clarendon Hotel off Charing Cross. What time did you leave this house? Well, it... It was about a quarter to eight, wasn't it, Alice? Yes. And after the play, we went to the Café Royal for a little refreshment with our friends and then came back here. I see. And what time did you arrive back at this house? Just a few minutes before midnight. I remember the grandfather clock in the hall striking just as we went into the drawing room. And your brother, Gilly, sir. I hate to waken him again. Have you any idea of his movements tonight? Well, he never goes out after dark, Mr. Mm -hmm. Holmes. But I spoke to the cook as we came in tonight. She says that he played cards with her until just after 10 o'clock. He was fast asleep when I looked in on him shortly after midnight. Thank you. 
You've made a note of all these facts, Watson. Yes, Holmes, I've got them all down. Good, then let's be on our way to Baker Street. But the police, Mr. Holmes, they're on their way. I know. Uh, uh, please give them my regards, will you? Apologize for my informality and tell them that I shall have the answer to this matter probably in a little over 24 hours. Holmes, here it is well after midnight. You haven't done a thing on the Camberwell case. No, but you have, old chap. You've checked on all the time alibis and found them valid. I'm much obliged to you. Yes, Inspector Lestrade was here tonight, you know, and he made some pretty caustic remarks, I can tell you. Oh, didn't you inform him that I'll uh, have the answer to the problem before many hours have passed? Uh, but you know, Lestrade, he, he wanted action. <laughs> you shall have it. Is the watch still running? Yes, there's another thing. What will Lestrade say when he finds that you took the dead man's watch? I've no idea. Oh, why did you take it anywhere? You sound sleepy, old chap. Uh, I'm confoundedly sleepy. Well, why don't you go to bed? Well, what are you going to do? Continue my vigil with my pipe and the watch of a dead man. Watson, Watson, wake up. What time is it? Five o'clock in the morning. Good Lord, will you dig up at this hour? The watch has just stopped. I'm about to rewind it. What are you rewinding it for, Holmes? You waited over 24 hours for it to unwind. When I know how many turns it takes to wind it fully, I shall have the answer to the whole business. Ten, eleven... You're being confoundedly mysterious, as usual. Fourteen. Fourteen turns, and the watch is fully wound. Get your clothes on, old chap. Where are we going on this hour? To the house in Camberwell. Now I know who murdered Gerald Lovelace. Edmund Lovelace, I'm glad you let us in. Please take us up to your young cousin's room at once. Really? What do you want with him? I'll explain in a moment. Please take us up to him. Well, of course, but what brings you here at this hour of the morning? Mr. Holmes knows who murdered your cousin. Well, I'm glad to hear it. It's more than the police seem to know. They were here half the night cross-examining us. Here we are. I don't think we'll bother to knock. Billy. Billy? I'm awake. We heard you coming up the stairs, didn't we, Gladstone? It's the same man again. You're not going to take Gladstone away, are you? Please don't take him away. Oh, don't worry, Gilly. We're not going to touch him. Oh, it's all right, then. Oh, Gilly. Yes? You really love that dog, don't you? Of course I do. More than anything or, or anybody. I believe you'd even kill a man who tried to hurt Gladstone, wouldn't you? Oh, yes, sir. I would. Billy! No. Great Scotter. Gilly, I don't think you'd really kill a man. I don't think you could. <laughs> Couldn't I, though? How would you kill him? I'd hit him first. I'd take a poker and hit him on the head so he couldn't fight back. And then I'd take the nasty needle he told me he was going to stick in Gladstone and, and, and I'd fill it full of that water he showed me and I'd stick it in him. That's what I'd do. Then he'd be dead. And, and he couldn't hurt my Gladstone anymore. Not ever. <laughs> Let's leave him, shall we? Goodbye, Gilly. Pleasant dreams. Goodbye, sir. Good old Gladstone. Are you satisfied, sir? Yes. Poor Gilly. There's no doubt about it, of course. Oh, can there be no one who described the murder to him, and yet he's just given an exact description of its method? What will happen to him? They, they won't try him. No, 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 no. A little pressure in the right places, and he'll be released to a private nursing home. I'll do everything I can, Mr. Lovelace. Thank you, Mr. Holmes. Thank you very much. <laughs> Now that we're back in Baker Street and the whole pressing case is finished with, perhaps you'll tell me how you knew that, that Gilly had committed the murder. Well, consider the uh, time schedules, old fellow. You checked the alibis of the other cousins and found them satisfactory. That meant that um, Alice Harley and uh, 
Randolph Lovelace could have committed the crime only at midnight. Edmund, only before 10. Gilly, only around 11. You said that the uh, time of death could have been at any of those hours. Yes, I did, sir. How did you pin it down to, uh, to 11? The watch gave me the specific answer. When I picked it up, I unthink unthinkingly wound it. Made one turn and was then fully wound. Now, when does a methodical, precise man like Gerald Lovelace wind his watch? Just he's going to bed. Exactly, old fellow. So that it was obvious that he was killed precisely one watch stem turn before I wound his watch. Now I'm beginning to see daylight, Holmes. So you let the watch run down. That's what I did. It took uh, 28 hours from 1 o'clock the night before last until 5 this morning. Now, how many turns did it take to rewind it? 14, wasn't it? That's right. Therefore, one turn of the watch stem equaled two hours, proving that Gerald Lovelace had been murdered two hours before one o'clock at 11 p.m. When Gilly was the only one who could have done it. You know, Holmes, I still find it hard to believe that boy was capable of such a ghastly crime. He seems so gentle. Oh, he is, he is. Except when his beloved dog's life was at stake, probably out of some mistaken notion of kindness, Gerald Lovelace warned the boy of his intentions regarding the dog. Oh, it's a sad business, Watson, a sad business. I hate to think of that boy spending the rest of his life in a mental home. I have one prayer for his future. What's that, Holmes? <clears throat> the dog Gladstone can't live very long. I pray that Gilly does not long outlive him. Doctor, that was a remarkable bit of deduction on the part of Mr. Holmes. Yes, extremely clever, wasn't it? Of course, if I may say so, I was of some small help myself. Small help? Why, Doctor, you practically solved the case by yourself. Oh, I wouldn't go as far as saying that. But, Doctor, you did check all the alibis, didn't you? Yes, I checked where each suspect was at various times. Yes, you checked time. And what's more important than time? Well, Why, I... Doctor, time is even vitally important when it comes to wine. I was wondering how you were going to bring that in. And one thing we do know, Petri took time to bring you good wine. So nobody can miss with Petri wine. It's just got to be good. You know, you can't be in the wine business as long as the Petri family without really learning all about the fine art of making wine. And don't forget, the Petri family has been making fine wine since way back in the 1800s. So, naturally, they've been able to hand on down from father to son, from father to son, the result of generations of experience at turning luscious, sun-ripened grapes into fragrant, delicious wine. No matter what type of wine you prefer, you'll like it more if it's a Petri wine. Because Petri took time to bring you good wine. Well, Dr. Watson, what new Sherlock Holmes story do you plan to tell us next week? Well, now, next week, Mr. Bartell, I'm going to tell you a most unusual adventure that Holmes and I had when we were attending a performance at the Opera House in Rome. It concerns a famous singer who lost her voice, an understudy who was nearly lynched, and a murder that baffled the police. I call it the adventure of the terrifying cat. Well, that's a story we've got to hear. Thank you, Mr. Bartell. And before you go, I want to talk to our friends about their war bonds. You know, during the war, the best investment we could find was a United States war bond. And for my money, they're still a great investment. They're called United States savings bonds now, and only the name is changed. Savings bonds are sold in the same denominations and give you all the same advantages. And you can buy savings bonds at the same places at your bank or your post office or through the payroll savings plan. So invest all you can in United States savings bonds because you cannot find a better or a safer investment. Tonight's Sherlock Holmes adventure was written by Dennis Green and Anthony Boucher and was suggested by an incident in the Sir Arthur Conan Doyle story, The Five Orange Pips. Music is by Dean Fossler. Mr. Rathbone appears through the courtesy of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer and Mr. Bruce through the courtesy of Universal Pictures, where they are now starring in the Sherlock Holmes series. The Petri Wine Company of San Francisco, California, 
invite you to tune in again next week, same time, same station. Sherlock Holmes comes to you from our Hollywood studios. This is Harry Bartell saying goodnight for the Petri family. That's Case Closed for this week. Hope you liked it. You can find more from Michael Shane, Sherlock Holmes, past episodes of this show, all the other podcasts, and thousands of old-time radio episodes at relicradio.com, R-E-L-I-C-R-A-D-I-O. While you're there, click on the Donate button. Your support keeps this show coming every week for free and keeps the website running. Thanks to those who have helped out. Thanks for joining me today. Be back next Wednesday with another hour of Case Closed. Case Closed.